We're studying 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. Our first segment is verses 8 to 11. Last time we studied or read the pastoral epistles, and then we studied the first seven verses. We continue our study in verse 8. We'll read 8 to 11 and go a paragraph at a time. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The apostle in verses 3 to 7 has made mention of certain men teaching strange doctrines, myths, endless genealogies, speculation. These are the things that they pursue. And they are also, it says in verse 7, teachers of the law. They teach the law. However, verse 7, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. They teach the law, but incorrectly. And they teach the law with great confidence, but their confidence is a baseless confidence. They don't know what they're talking about. Well, Paul the Apostle does know what he's talking about. And that's why he says the use of the law. He presents the use of the law. And actually, the use of the law before conversion and the use of the law after conversion. The different uses of the law. And what does he mean by the law? At least in this case, in verses 8 to 11, his focus is the Ten Commandments. We'll see that. That is quite evident in this passage. First, verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So naturally... We have to ask, if the Apostle Paul says the law is good, then anybody who says the law is evil, anybody who downplays the use of the law, anybody who misuses the law is a false teacher. He has to assume that the law is good. This is evident in Romans chapter 7. Romans 7:12 We read Romans 7:12, 7, 7:12 12, 7, 12 and 13. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good. That through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Here, it's holy, righteous, and good. And in what sense is he using it at this point in Romans 7? He's saying that it is good, Romans 7. 7.13, for what end? To effect my death. That is, its purpose is to show forth the righteousness and holiness of God because it's a reflection of the attributes of God. And when it shows forth God's holiness, His goodness, His righteousness, then it should be contrasted with our unholiness our unrighteousness, and our evil. So then when it does that, it will affect our death. That is, it will show forth that we are under condemnation. We are under the wrath of God because we are living contrary to it. 
That's the point. That's the way to preach the gospel. If it's not there in the preaching of the gospel, then that's a false gospel. It has to be preached like that. But then, in Romans 7, 14 to 25, the apostle speaks of the two natures of the converted man. The old man and the new man. The old heart and the new heart. In verses 14 to 25. In 14 to 25, does he abandon the use of the law? After he is converted, does he say, okay, let's set the law aside. It is abolished. It's abolished in my personal life. So there's no need to reflect on it. There's no need to know it. There's no need to live according to its standard. Is that the sentiment he has? Is that the mentality he has? No. 14 to 25, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. In 14, he called it spiritual, the law. In 16, he repeats that it is good. And then he speaks of waging war, his flesh with the good, spiritual, holy, righteous law of God. He even says that this law of God, verse 22, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, that this law, the Ten Commandments, are in his inner man. And in 25, he says, my mind, with my mind, that he is serving the law of God. This is the post-conversion use of the law. After his conversion, in 12 and 13, he spoke of it pre-conversion, and then in 14 to 25, after his conversion. Well, this is what false teachers do not understand. Either before conversion or after conversion or both, they do not understand it. And when we say they do not understand, meaning they do not understand it with faith for their salvation. They know what we're talking about. They can comprehend it intellectually. They can give mental assent to what the Bible teaches. But in terms of believing it and doing it, they despise it. That's what the Apostle is addressing in 1 Timothy. A true preacher understands its pre-conversion and post-conversion use. Before we move on to verse 9, any additional comments or cross-references on this? The law is good if one uses it lawfully. So what is the lawful use? Yes? At um, Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. 8? 
Okay, Joshua 1, 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. What's this verse teaching us then? This, is, this verse is teaching us that God's expectation is for the law to be on our minds at all times, even to the believer. Even to the believer. This Joshua is a believer. Towards Joshua. Yes, Joshua is a believer, even for him. Galatians 3, 19. Galatians. Galatians 3, 19 to 22. Galatians 3, 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So since the law is good, he says it's not a, a contrary to the promises of God. It does not teach us to become righteous by law, but it shuts up everyone under sin, just like he says in Romans 7, that um, sin would become utterly sinful. Okay, yes. So it prepares us for the promise of life by faith in Christ. It prepares us for that. We have to first be held guilty to be released from that guilt. Correct? And that's the purpose of the law pre-conversion. Also, by the way, some will say in the Old Testament, the law's purpose was to work for salvation or to the extent that they had the faith they needed in the God of the Old Testament, who's different from the God of the New Testament, they say, and devoid of faith in Jesus Christ, they say, they would be saved according to their faith or faithfulness to that law. But Galatians 3 says that was not its purpose. Even Moses understood it was not for that purpose. Romans 4, 6, and 3. Romans 4, 6 through 8. Romans 4, 6 through 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And there, the apostle quotes David in Psalm 32, 1 and 2. And So just to prove that in the Old Testament, it was not righteousness by works. In the Old Testament, it was not righteousness by works. David lived hundreds of years after Moses. And in the chapter, he primarily focuses on Abraham who lived hundreds of years before Moses. Hundreds of years before Moses, hundreds of years after Moses, Mo, um, Abraham and David and Moses, they all understood that the law is not the basis of their salvation, but it prepares them to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Anyone else? Yes. Psalm 119. Psalm 119. There's so much to read in it concerning (laughs) the subject, but I'll just just start in verse 1. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And then down in verse 4, you have ordained your precepts, law, that we should keep them diligently. Verse 5, oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes, your law. Yes. Yes. So the whole psalm, It's unintelligible if that kind of godly living based on the law of God was not expected or impossible 
in the Old Testament. And Psalm 119 would also be David. So David understood in Psalm 32, he understood in Psalm 119, he understood in Psalm 19 and elsewhere that this was the case with him and with all true believers. So what, what is it that's, what, what are the doctrines or the theologies, the heresies that are contrary to this? What, what are they called? Antinomianism. Antinomianism. Anti, against law. Namas from Greek and anti, against law. So they don't want any law to control them, to regulate them, to guide them, to be a standard, to be a rule. They want nothing like that. They don't want it pre-conversion. In fact, they think it's a sin to preach against sin to sinners. You can't do that. You cannot preach to an idolater and tell him idolatry is a sin. You need to repent and believe in the gospel. You cannot preach to a sodomite and tell a sodomite sodomy is a sin. You need to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot tell a liar lying is a sin. You need to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot tell somebody who takes the name of the Lord in vain Taking the Lord's name in vain is a sin. You need to repent and believe that Jesus died and rose again for you. So on. They don't want that kind of preaching. And things like that have been said. Many times people believe that. The only sin is to call man a sinner. In their view. When that's what they need to be saved. They need to know that. Romans 3, Romans 3, 19 and 20. More on the preparatory use, okay? 3, 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of, of sin. Right. So every person that's under the Ten Commandments says all the world may become accountable to God. Yes, we become accountable to God on purpose. It's God's design. And if that doesn't happen first, then the salvation cannot happen after that. And since we're in Romans 3, after we are prepared and condemned, held accountable, our mouths are closed in verses 19 and 20, That's humility. God humbles us. Then what has to happen? 21 to 22. 21, Romans 3, 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. So even in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses and in the prophets, after people are prepared and condemned before the law of God, the law of God also teaches us that we need to believe in Christ. He says that right there in verse 21. So the law not only prepares us by condemning us, but the law also delivers us by preaching the promises of God in Jesus Christ. So, the law is always necessary to know to preach the law and the prophets. Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah 9, 3. Go ahead. It says, While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So Nehemiah and the people thought it was so important that they stood in their place and read the book of the law of the Lord for at least a fourth of the day. 
and then confessed and worshiped God. Confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord. So important for the purpose of exposing their sins, you mean? Right, yes. Yes. So important for the purpose of exposing the sins of the people. Which is evident in their confession. Yes. And then their confession, which entails the rest of the chapter. It's a confessional prayer, the rest of the chapter. All right. Then, the apostle further explains what he's talking about in verses 9 and 10. 9 and 10. And uh, one commentator, at least one, he has pointed out that the Apostle evidently is reflecting on the Ten Commandments here. We may see him going in sequence in the Ten Commandments. Notice, Verse 9, realizing the fact that law, the concept of a law, of a regulation, a statute, the concept of a law, law is not made for a righteous man. Correct? Why is it that we have on the roads speed limit signs? Why are they necessary? Without them, people would put others in harm. Without them, people would put others in harm. If a road is supposed to be only 20 miles an hour and somebody goes 100 miles an hour, and the road might be 20 because it's got many curves, it might be a zigzag, and if it is a zigzag, then can we go 100 miles an hour on a zigzag? No. If we do that, we'll kill ourselves, we'll kill everybody in us or in anybody else on the opposite side or in front of us, whatever. There would be death, right? So that's why there is a limit. It needs to regulate our inability to control ourselves. Because one citizen will say, well, I think I can manage that same road 35 miles an hour. Another one will say 55 miles an hour and another one 100, Right? If he's a teenager with his new license, he might think he can go 100 on that. And then there's death. Correct? So the law is not made for a righteous man who understands everything and has sobriety and self-control, but it's meant for those without self-control who are transgressors, who are wicked. That's the very purpose of the law, to regulate, to control this behavior. So he says, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, they are lawless and rebellious. Lawless meaning within themselves, they know what's right, but they don't care. They just want to do what they want to do. How do we know that within themselves that they know what is right. He calls them lawless, but he doesn't mean that they are lawless in that they don't know what's right. He means that they are lawless in that they know what's right and then they transgress it. How do we know that that's what he means? He says rebellious, right? Then he says rebellious. He describes lawlessness as rebellion. So that means they know what's right within the context he's saying that. Romans 2, 14 and 15. Romans 2, 14 and 15 about knowing what is right. Romans 2, 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Gentiles who don't have the written law of God, the many nations of the world, the pagans of the world, they don't have the written law of God, the written word of God, but they do have it, verse 14, instinctively, they do have it written in their hearts, they do have it on their conscience, they do have it in their thoughts, so they do have it in that way. So they are 
They know what's right, but instead of doing what's right, they are lawless and rebellious toward what is true within them. They act contrary to it. Okay, then, examples of it. The first, he says, for the ungodly, who are the ungodly? We may say that this could correspond to the first commandment. The first commandment, if we wanted to go back and forth and double check, we could go to the book of Exodus, Exodus 20, 1 to 17. Exodus 20, 1 to 17. And its counterpart is in Deuteronomy 5, 1 to 21. But we'll go to Exodus 20. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. If we don't have the one true God, living God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, if we do not worship Him, then we have another God. Therefore, we are ungodly. Next, he says, and sinners. What would that be? A sinner. A sinner would be contrary to the second commandment, verses 4 to 6. Exodus 20, verse 4, worshiping an idol. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Next is unholy. Now, if you have some doubt on the first few, I think when we get to the second part of the Ten Commandments, this enumeration from 1 Timothy will make more sense. Okay? So look at number three. The third one would be for the unholy. What would that be? Taking God's name in vain. Verse 7, Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. The fourth, to profane. He says, it's for the profane. This one may be more evident to us. To profane the Lord's day. That would be the fourth commandment. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath, the seventh uh, day. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So if we don't keep it holy, we profane it. Verse 6. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female slave, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Next is the fifth commandment. For those who kill their fathers or mothers. That corresponds with Exodus 20, verse 12. The fifth commandment, which is, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. That's the fifth commandment. That one is obvious if we go in that sequence. The next one It says, for murderers. The law is for murderers to know, which corresponds to Exodus 20, verse 13, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. The seventh commandment relates to uh, sexual sin, which says in Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Well, we have two examples of sexual sin in 1 Timothy 1, verse 10. It says, immoral men and homosexuals. 
In the Greek, the word immoral is typically that word that refers to sexual immorality. In English, sometimes when we say immoral, we mean sexual immorality of different kinds. But at other times, we use the word immoral to be a general word to be unethical. But in this context, it's likely he's using it in the sexual way. Sexually immoral men and homosexuals, two examples of sexual sins. One that's general and then another one that's uh, specific. The general one, immoral men. The specific one, homosexuals. Then kidnappers. A kidnapper. That corresponds to Exodus 20, 15. You shall not steal. And notice, kidnapper. To nap, not to, to nap in the sense of taking a short uh, break for sleep, but to nap meaning to, to what? To snatch away? Okay. And kid. And this often happens with children, right? So that's why it's called kidnapping. But also adults can be stolen. Correct? Children can be stolen. Adults can be stolen. Men and women alike, especially women and children. So kidnappers is theft of a human being. Exodus 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. And since we're in Exodus, we can also see Exodus 21, 16. Exodus 21, 16 says, And he who kidnaps a man, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. And literally, the word kidnap in 21.16 is the word to steal. He who steals a man should be put to death. Then the next sin is 1 Timothy 1.10. Liars and perjurers. Liars and perjurers. Lying is lying generally, but perjury is a specific kind of lie. Perjury is that kind of a lie under oath in the courtroom. That's perjury. And even Exodus 20, it implies that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the phraseology in Exodus 20, verse 16, is the phraseology of a courtroom, to bear false witness or to testify against your neighbor. And he means don't do it Falsely, don't lie about your neighbor in the courtroom. So if it's wrong in the courtroom, it's also wrong generally because if you lie generally, that's how you trap him and get him to show up in the courtroom, correct? So it's wrong in both settings, generally and specifically. Then he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, teaching. He includes covetousness there. And everything that stems from that root, covetousness. Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male slave or his female slave or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Covetousness is that which begins in the inner man, right? And if this covetousness or evil desire begins within us, will we not break all of the first nine commandments? Before we murder, we have some evil desire against our brother or another human being to murder him, right? we would covet or have some evil desire against him, and then we would carry it out. The same with the rest of the sins. It starts within us, and it shows outwardly. And so that's why he says, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, because the root of all sin is this evil desire. Is that not what happened in Genesis 3 
to Adam and Eve. What does it say? It was the tree, the fruit of the tree was desirable to make one wise. Desirable to make one wise. So that evil desire that they had manifested itself in disobedience to God's commandment. Including the Ten Commandments. Because when they broke the one commandment, they actually broke all Ten Commandments, Adam and Eve. The same here. An all-encompassing phrase to deal with any and all sin. Before we move on to him comparing it or saying what it is in accordance with, any further comments, cross-references, or questions on this enumeration in verses 9 and 10? Titus 1.9. Titus 1.9. Titus 1.9. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And this verse teaches what? Well, just that, that uh, according to 1 Timothy 1.10, uh, that the law says, well, certainly not realizing that the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless, and then it says, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So um, we need to hold fast to what we're taught in the entirety of the scriptures. Um, so that way uh, we can refute those who contradict. Okay. The, the doctrine of the scripture is the sound doctrine, the sound teaching. And whatever contradicts it needs to be refuted. up this home scene which you mentioned uh, righteousness Romans 7 7-7 Romans 7-7 and 8 okay okay Romans 7-7 what shall we say then is the law sin may it never be on the contrary I would not have come to no sin except through the law for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Uh, yeah, uh, when he says... Uh I didn't know what coveting was until probably I realized in the law it is forbidden to covet. And then he thought he was living, uh, but he was alive in the flesh. But biblically, he was dead. dead. Uh, he was walking bones. So, sin uh, came up and Paul died. So he's mentioning uh, one of his things that are actually brought up, being covetousness. Covetousness. Yes. Um, so this, Revelation three nineteen, that the law was added because of transgressions. Mm -hmm. The law is not made for a righteous person. If you are not a liar at heart, you don't need to be told not to lie. If you're not an adulterer at heart, you don't need to be told don't commit adultery. The, the law was added because we are already those things at heart. Adam and Eve didn't need to be told don't commit adultery because they weren't adulterers at heart until after they fell. And so it's perfect that he's going through the Ten Commandments to show that these are what we are. These things are what we are by nature. We are by nature children. Good. Yes. Um, expand on this phrase because of transgressions. Added because of transgressions. That's a perplexing phrase for some people. Why does he say, he's answering the question, a common question, why the law then? Because the law of Moses was not composed until the time of Moses. But what happened between the time of Adam 
Abraham, and then all the way to Moses. Many, many years preceded the time of Moses. So the question naturally is, why was the law added? Why the law then? Romans 5, 12 through 14. Romans 5, 12 to 14. It was added because of transgressions. You're saying Romans 5, 12 answers that? Mm-hmm. Okay. 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense, who is a type of him who was to come. Where does this answer? 13? Sin and death spread to all men. Um, And so the the law came to to show and add to the transgression and reveal that everyone is shut up under sin. To reveal that everyone is shut up under sin. All right. Anything else? Romans 3 will add to his comment. Okay. Romans 3. Okay. That in that, in verses 1 to 20, of, actually, it starts in 118. From 118 to 320, the apostle is exposing our sins. He's explaining sin. He explains it in creation, 118 to 132. He explains it in our conscience, chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. And then he explains it in commandment, 217 to 320. Creation, conscience, commandment, three sources of us knowing that we are guilty before God. Psalm 14, 2 and 3 says, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They all have turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none. There is no one who does good, not even God. Psalm 14, 2 and 3, which he quotes in Romans 3, 3, 10 to 12. Okay. Now, the other phrase, it's curious in First Timothy 1, he says that whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, then where is the sound teaching to be found? He says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. So where is the sound teaching found? In the gospel, right? The glorious gospel of the blessed God. So sound teaching, glorious gospel of the blessed God, they cannot be separated. So then, if they cannot be separated, can we separate the Ten Commandments from the gospel? And is, if we do separate it, would it be sound teaching? No. Absolutely not. It all has to be together. If it's not together, then it's been compromised, it's been diluted, it's been polluted, and therefore it's not worthy of drinking or consuming. Correct? He says whatever else is contrary to some teaching, so it means that this, these Ten Commandments are part of the sound teaching. Yes. They are a part of the sound teaching. Well, the, the antinomians always try to use 1 Corinthians 9.21 yes. to say that we're no longer under law because they focus on the phrase under the law of Christ, but they ignore the first part of that. To those who are without a law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. They just, they just drop the whole first part of that clause. Though not being without the law of God, Yes. They, they just erase that and just focus on under the law of Christ. Right. So how would we, if the law of God is still applicable to us as believers, 
Both unbelievers need to know it, believers need to know it, and live accordingly by the grace of God with the indwelling of the Spirit. He says, not being without the law of God, that's what we're talking about right here, correct? Then how would we explain to an antinomian, to a lawless man, to a licentious man, to the one who claims grace? They claim grace, but they pervert grace. There is such a thing as true grace and false grace. In 1 Peter 5.12, he says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. If he says this is the true grace of God, then what would be the false grace? Jude 4, who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness, who turned the grace of our God into lawlessness. So then, if they seize upon, twist, Roman, uh, 1 Corinthians 9.21, they say we're under the law of Christ, while ignoring within the same sentence, with not being without the law of God. What correctly, truly is the law of Christ? They call it what, and what does the Bible call it? Or they define it in a certain way. How does the Bible define it? They define it as Christian liberty? Yes. They define it as Christian liberty. The law of Christ equals Christian liberty. And Christian liberty to them equals what? Lawlessness. Lawlessness. Freedom to sin. Freedom to sin. Do what's right in your own eyes. Do what's right in your own eyes. <coughs> Hyper grace. Hyper grace. But Romans 6 teaches what true freedom is in Christ. Okay, Romans 6 teaches what true freedom is. Where? Romans 6? The whole chapter. Then. The whole chapter. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How can they avoid this? They can only avoid it, avoid it by ignoring it. By closing their eyes willfully. Yes. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self or the old man, was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, that this is the application of it. There's no point in saying, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead. I believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. There's no point in mouthing it, confessing it, unless we really believe it. So what's the point? He gets to the point in verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And he continues with sanctification. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Is it not clear in verses 12 and 13 that he's telling us stop sinning? Isn't he telling us do not continue to live in sin? Is there any difficulty in understanding those words? He's using short, simple words, right? Do not let sin reign. 
in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. You only need a first or second grade education to understand those words, right? Correct? So why is it so difficult? Is it because of comprehension? No. It's because of what? Because they are slaves, they love to be slaves of sin. So they'll make excuses for it. And one such excuse is a distortion, a misquotation. You're not under law, but under grace. You're not under law, but under grace. You're, we're under grace. We're in the age of grace. In dispensationalism, they say, we're in the age of grace. Right? They say that? You're not under law, but under grace. And if you say anything that is a tinge or a hint of law, then what are you? Legalist. You're a legalist. You're a Pharisee. You're concerned with minutia, right? They'll say things like that. That's what they'll say. But does the apostle anticipate this diabolical distortion of his own words? Does the apostle Paul anticipate the diabolical distortion of his own words. You're not under law, but under grace. We're under grace, not under law. Does he anticipate it? Yes. Verse 15. 15. 15 till the end. Especially 15 to 19. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. There he answers it. Right there. May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness... So now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He refutes his, the distortion of his own words. So this is the glorious gospel of the blessed God. And then one more phrase in verse 11, 1 Timothy 1.11 he says, with which I have been entrusted. With which I have been entrusted. So what has been entrusted to him? The glorious gospel of the blessed God. But is it only entrusted to him? 1 Timothy 6 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. 1 Timothy 6, 20. And also we should ask, what does it mean to have something entrusted to us? If it is entrusted to us, does it not come with a responsibility? So then what is the responsibility? 1 Timothy 6, 20. O Timothy... Guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. What are we supposed to do with that which is entrusted to us? 
If someone entrusts something to us, something valuable, what are we supposed to do? Verse 20. Guard it. We're supposed to guard it against worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. So they will call false knowledge knowledge, but we have to identify it and say, no, that's not true knowledge of God. That's not a good argument. That's a false argument. We have to guard the true gospel. Also, 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1.12. 2 Timothy 1.12-14. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. The Apostle says that God is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him until that day. What has the Apostle entrusted to God to guard? His eternal life. His his soul to protect Him. Right? And then, what are we to do in light of that fact? Verse 13. Retain the standard of sound words. The sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Right? Further, 14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. What is that treasure entrusted to us? The glorious gospel of the blessed God. The apostle, Timothy, Titus, and everyone else who has believed the gospel and has his soul in the hand of God who is protecting us for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He also expects us to be diligently guarding, protecting, keeping the true gospel. This means that It's an essential doctrine. We cannot say it's a non-essential doctrine, unessential doctrine. It's a matter of preference that people look at it differently. So it's okay. Some people believe in the use of the Ten Commandments, pre-conversion and post-conversion. Other people do not believe in it, pre-conversion and post-conversion. But that's okay. We're all Christians. We all believe the same gospel. We are all entrusted with the same gospel. According to our study, that's not true. Somebody has worldly and empty chatter. Somebody has false knowledge. And the other has true knowledge. Any further comment before we close this hour? Um, Paul also includes the Old Testament in 2 Timothy 3. He includes the Old Testament in 2 Timothy 3. 3, 14 to 17. You, however, 2 Timothy 3, 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Where do you see the Old Testament? The sacred writings in verse 15 and all scripture in verse 16. Yes, because if he's saying it about Timothy, he has to be saying that his mother and grandmother taught him, which he says in 2 Timothy 1.5. And if that is the case, and Timothy, this letter was written... 2 Timothy was Paul's last letter, written about A.D. 66 or 67, then it has to be that his grandmother, no doubt his grandmother, only had 
the Old Testament. Good. Any other comments? And so if it's just the Old Testament, expand on that. If he had the Old Testament only, then what? There's one gospel for all time. There's one gospel for all time. Which he says, lead the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 15. One gospel. Yes, yes. And it's that glorious gospel that he's going to use to refute those evil beasts, liars. Right. Which means we must correctly understand it, we must guard it, and then use it to refute others. Always. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.